You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, at the EU summit on Monday, leaders brokered a new deal with Turkey on migrants, heralding it as a breakthrough. Turkey is to get more money and a promise that refugees will be brought from Turkey to various EU states legally. I'll be talking to European correspondent Suzanne Lynch in Brussels about the deal's prospects. And just like Spain and Ireland, a general election in Slovakia has produced a hung parliament, but which now includes for the first time a group of real neo-Nazis, as well as a variety of other unacceptable partners for any coalition. Diane McLaughlin will be discussing Robert Fico's chances of forming government. In China, a new edict by the Communist Party appears likely to make TV programming desperately dull. Clifford Coonan on the new Puritanism of Comrade Xi. I'm Patrick Smith, Worldviews and Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. With 100,000 migrants and refugees expected to reach Greece this month alone, and more than 30,000 asylum seekers trapped in Greece, Suzanne, another late-night EU meeting produced a surprising beginning of a deal on migrants and Turkey. They're proposing to return to the issue at an EU summit on March the 17th and 18th. What are the key elements, though, of this proposed deal? Um, yes, well, this summit had expected to be kind of a, a quick, a fairly straightforward summit. Uh, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, had been pushing for a specific uh, EU-Turkey summit um, at the last uh, summit of EU leaders in February. This was scheduled for Monday this week, and um, there had been a lot of diplomacy going on in the background. European Council President Donald Tusk had, had already visited Ankara. He'd visited countries along the Western Balkans route. So people thought it would be fairly straightforward. In the end, it wasn't, uh, because because really uh, EU leaders were taken by surprise by a fresh set of demands from the Turkish Prime Minister who attended the summit. Um, and really what, what they were discussing was an EU-Turkey deal that had been broadly agreed back in November. There was a three billion package. That had been slow in terms of implementation. Um, but what um, the Turkish, from the Turkish side, they asked for a number of new demands. Um, they asked for more money, essentially a doubling of the three billion uh, that had been on offer in November. Also, a quicker um, progress of visa liberalisation for Turkish citizens travelling to the Schengen area and an acceleration of accession talks. These were all put on the table by Turkey on Monday um, and uh, underpinning all this was a, a quite a radical proposal to resettle uh, refugees across Europe on a one-for-one on one exchange basis so that if Turkey takes back migrants from the Greek islands, well then uh, the EU would agree to resettle the same number of migrants across the EU. And those that they would resettle would be explicitly those who had not availed themselves of people traffickers? Yes, exactly. So the idea would be to, to take... Um, refugees who had not yet gone to Europe, if you like, who were in Turkey, who travelled from the Middle East to Turkey and, and take those directly. Now, this idea of a direct resettlement, i.e. taking refugees straight from the countries like Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan, Germany has been pursuing this idea over the last few months. It's kind of been emerged as, as a key point, but the, the huge problem, of course, is that a number of EU countries are not interested in doing this. Hungary, for example, a lot of the Central East European countries have said they are against mandatory quotas. So what Merkel in particular has been pushing for in the last few months is some kind of a coalition of the willing, that a number of a core group of countries um, who are keen to do this would be able to participate. Now, it is very unclear at the moment 
who will be willing to go along with Germany on this. The Netherlands have said it's interested. Um, and in the early days, we had about 10 or 11 countries who were interested. But we still uh, haven't seen any country coming forward really strongly saying that they also support this idea of a direct resettlement scheme. So the devil's in the detail, and there's an awful lot of detail to be worked out um, because this is not a... This is essentially a, a German-led deal, which the other EU member states haven't in practice signed up to. Absolutely. I mean, as some officials were saying in Brussels on Monday night, that really both Germany and Greece, and, and ironically these two countries are looking for the same thing in, in, in this situation, but they needed something. They needed uh, some kind of a, an agreement, but it's by no means done. A lot of work is going to be done in the next 10 days. Fundamentally, the main problem facing this agreement at this point is that there's already been questions about its compa compatibility with international law. The UNHCR on Tuesday, within hours of, of this draft agreement being endorsed and um, raised questions about its com compatibility, about this idea of, of mass um, migration of people back to a country like Turkey. So uh, the European Commission and the Council over the next 10 days are going to have their legal teams in place seeing that whatever deal is again presented at the summit on the 17th of March, that this is fully in, in compatible with the international and EU treaties. Now, um, the, the likelihood is that there will be a court challenge almost immediately on, on, on this. Isn't that the case? Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is the worry. This has been flagged already now. As I say, the, the Commission and Council will make sure their ducks are in a row before they um, present this deal finally uh, next Thursday. But um, already, yeah, there, there's been calls from human rights groups, from the UN, etc., questioning its legality. The other issue is that the uh, Hungarian government and a number of, of East European countries have already gone to the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, about the relocation scheme. That's the internal scheme to relocate 160,000 migrants. Um, but the fact if this scheme, resettlement scheme in the, in the New Deal, will say is not mandatory, well, then obviously it will automatically exclude those countries that are not willing to participate in. So that will might um, kind of stop that avenue um, of, of a legal challenge from those countries in, this time around. And, and, of course, there's another element of a backlash likely to come internally, and, and that is on the easier uh, Turkish visas, uh, visas mm. for Turkish workers. The French in particular, I think, are, are likely to, to do everything they can to block that. Yes, absolutely. This is one of the most politically sensitive aspects of this whole deal, the idea that 75 million Turkish citizens would have visa-free access to the Schengen area. Um, it's also something that Erdogan in particular, the Turkish president, he is particularly attached to this idea. He sets huge store on it and he's really going to want to be able to show progress on it. As you say, France is very lukewarm and of course Germany until recently was. And this is what's so interesting about the story, the, the, the shift in policy, not just from an EU level, but particularly from Germany towards greater engagement with Turkey. Um, now, the Commission had already uh, committed to bringing forth a review of the visa-free arrangements and the visa arrangements until later this year, and that was agreed back in November. It's now, with the latest draft that was circulating on Monday night at the summit, looking at bringing this forward even again to June 2016. At the same time, they've said the same criteria will need to apply, etc. Um, but what people will be watching out for is if the EU prepares to kind of soften its demands on the Turkish end um, in order to give them a visa-free travel. And of course, what you're saying about Merkel is particularly interesting in, in the light of, of uh, the picture of, of Merkel as, as Greece's great enemy during the bailout talks. Uh, Greece and Germany in lockstep, it seems, at this time. Yes, 
I mean, the, one of the um, one of the aspects of this is that obviously Greece is the country that's really at the at the centre um, from the EU perspective of this crisis. Um, and one issue that's been raised, for example, would should Greece get um, maybe better concessions on its debt um, in, because of all it's doing to, on the refugee crisis. Now, Germany has been a pain to point out the two things are disconnected, but officials have pointed out that actually uh, Greece can ill afford to ask more of Germany because on the migration issue, Germany is its only friend. Germany is the only country that is willing to keep accepting these uh, Syrian refugees that are travelling through Greece where a number of other countries are closing their border. Um, both Angela Merkel and Alexis Tsipras also obviously have an eye on their electorates, particularly uh, Germany. Uh, Merkel is facing regional elections on the 13th of March. So um, it goes without saying that that was playing on the decision to hold uh, the summit uh, this week in Brussels. And where does Ireland stand in all of this? We were keeping our heads down. How many refugees are we likely to be taking? Are are we part of the, the coalition of the willing? Well, Ireland and Britain, because we're not members of Schengen, um, are technically out of the conversation on this. In saying that, Ireland decided, unlike Britain, to opt into the relocation plan uh, last week. So it could, uh, last year, excuse me. So it could also choose uh, to take part in the resettlement program. Now, the Taoiseach Enda Kenny was quite strong on this on his way into the summit on Monday. He said that Ireland had already committed to accepting 4,000 refugees, but there, was not, there were problems on the other side, uh, namely that the EU relocation scheme has, is not yet working and that countries like Ireland have um, offered to take refugees and really the system has, has flopped, essentially, and, and we haven't received as many as we, as we wanted to. Um, so they will be biding their time, the Irish government, it seems, to, before they decide on participating in any resettlement scheme. What the uh, Taoiseach did suggest, though, is that the government and uh, the Defence Ministry may be uh, willing to send another ship uh, to the area following um, the dispatchment of of various vessels last year to the Mediterranean. Now, whether this would be in the Aegean Sea uh, between Turkey and Greece or in the Mediterranean, that's still no clarity on that. But uh, we could see the Ireland moving in this direction once again uh, to participate in its its role, if you like, in the refugee crisis. And so, on balance, what would you say? A good night's work, or or most of the questions still left beg- begging? I think they they were. I think um, the EU were lucky to get any kind of endorsement on this deal on Monday because I think there is still a lot of concern across the EU that um, the EU is giving too many concessions to Turkey that is turning a blind eye to human rights uh, difficulties and clampdown on media freedom uh, that are happening in the country. And so I think those voices are going to get louder over the next 10 days. So it will be a challenge for the European Council and Commission to really prove that it's worth doing uh, this deal with Turkey and that the EU is not selling out to some extent. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Slovakia's outgoing Prime Minister, Roberto Fico, leader of the left-leaning Schmer party, faces Enda Kenny's challenge of forming a government from a heavily depleted base, 44% down to 28% in the election last weekend. Fico made much of his anti-immigrant politics, uh, but has been outflanked on the issue by hardline nationalists and by an explicitly fascist party. Dan McLaughlin, is there a possibility of a majority here? It's going to be extremely uh, difficult to form one. As you mentioned there, Paddy, uh, and we're already seeing the difficulties now. Um, Fito was supposed to meet with the president today um, because his party did, uh, as you mentioned there, it, it, it did win the election, even though with a, a greatly reduced showing and with far fewer seats in parliament than last time out in 2012. But as the biggest party, he's expected to have the first 
the, the first crack at forming a coalition. But Fico himself canceled, postponed that meeting today, at which he was supposed to receive the mandate from the president, because the picture is so muddled. Um, the way it looks at the moment, even though uh, Fico's party smear has the largest number of seats in parliament, he's going to, to, to struggle desperately to form a coalition, because most of the other, uh, the other seven uh, parties that made it into parliament have refused to work with him. So it does look at the moment like the the second place party, which is called Freedom and Solidarity, a strongly pro-business party. That at the moment looks like it might have the best chance of forming a coalition. Uh, the leader of that party uh, has said today that he thinks he can get six of the parties together um, into a coalition. He, he hopes that's the he hopes he can do that, and he's and he's uh, and he intends to to hold talks on making that happen in the next few days. That would that be would an be extraordinary to... juggling act to get six parties together. It would be very, very difficult, um, and it's and it's going to mean. Uh, I mean, if we look at those six parties, uh, they would be to the that that coalition would be to the exclusion of of Smear, Fito's party, and to the uh, the openly fascist party that you mentioned there as well. Um, no one wants to work with that party, quite understandably. But there is another nationalist party which, um, until this recent sort of turn of events, was seen as pretty extreme in itself. If the, the second place party, Freedom and Solidarity, if, if, if that could form a coalition, it would mean bringing in the Slovak National Party, um, which has been in government relatively recently and was part of a previous coalition led by Fico and Smear. But the difficulty with that is that there is a, a, a considerable Hungarian minority in Slovakia, and they've always had problems with the Slovak National Party, um, which has, uh, on occasion, uh, launched into some pretty vituperative uh, anti-Hungarian rhetoric. So it would be a juggling act. It would be very difficult to sort of paper over the cracks between all those different parties, bringing together Slovak nationalists with a, an ethnic Hungarian party and so on. And even if you did manage to bring them together, um, how long it would last, how stable it would be, how much cohesion there would be over time um, is certainly debatable. Now, the other story of the election is the rise of the People's Party, R Slovakia. Um, this, this is an openly fascist party, um, some would say neo-Nazi, a remarkably scary party led by a guy called Marian Kotleba, um, the governor of central Slovakia. It's a bit like Jobbik in Hungary, isn't it? Can you tell us a bit about this party? Um, it is. It's uh, it, it's a, it's a real shock. This is the biggest shock, um, not only to the not only within Slovakia but around Europe. Um, they've got 14 seats in parliament. The Slovak National Party, a, a much more long-established party, has got 15. So uh, the extreme right there, making up almost 30 seats um, in the 150-seat parliament. Um, it's it's an extreme. An extreme right party, as you say, openly fascist. Uh, the leader, Marian Kotleba, has faced legal problems uh, for statements that he's made in the past, which have outraged people. Um, it's been openly supportive of what was a, a Nazi puppet regime that ran Slovakia in the, during the Second World War and was responsible for tens of thousands of Jews being sent off to the concentration camps. So it's, it's shocking to many people in Slovakia and abroad. But it does speak of really the the emphasis that um, that Fito put on the refugee question, 
through the through the campaign with some extremely tough rhetoric himself, refusing to take any Muslims into Slovakia, he said, because he thinks that um, it's impossible to integrate Muslims. He thinks they bring with them a, a, a threat of terrorism. He thinks they will undermine um, the Christian values, as he puts it, and the European traditions of Slovakia and other places in Central Europe. This does echo the kind of things we've heard from um, Viktor Orban, for example, Prime Minister of Hungary, uh, and the Czech President, Miloš Zeman, who both also issued, you know, almost blood-curdling statements at times on, on the need to keep uh, these mostly Muslim refugees out of Central Europe. You mentioned Jobbik there. Um, I mean, it's interesting to look at the Hungarian political scene now because uh, Jobbik, in a way, is, is struggling to find a territory of its own because uh, Orbán's uh, ruling Fidesz party has moved so far to the right uh, on the refugee crisis that I, I spoke to one of the leading members of Jobbik about two or three weeks ago, and he claimed that the party still had relevance, but he also said that basically with uh, the fence-building program, that Orban has has uh, has led on on Hungary's southern borders to keep migrants out, with this extremely tough rhetoric against migrants and against refugees. This this leading Jobbik member was saying basically Orban's party has taken our policies on the refugee policy on the refugee crisis and put them into effect. So while we do see um, uh, the results in Slovakia being probably the most shocking well, definitely the most shocking shift to the right um, at the ballot box. We are seeing across Central Europe mainstream politicians and mainstream parties moving very, very quickly and dramatically to the right themselves. Yes, and but I mean, in, in Slovakia's case, uh, FISO's adop adoption of anti-migrant policies hasn't actually taken ground from uh, the People's Party. It seems to have, it seems to have encouraged it. You're right, but yeah, it, it's absolutely backfired on him. Um, by focusing almost exclusively on this issue, on the refugee crisis during the campaign, um, yeah, I think Fizzo thought sought to sort of uh, uh, paint himself and, and his allies in the party as, as champions of uh, and defenders of Slovakia, because he is intent on portraying this refugee crisis as a threat to Slovakia and the rest of Europe. But in fact, all he did was really give ammunition to more extreme parties. Um, and he ignored a lot of the things which ordinary Slovaks are worried about other than the refugee crisis. Things like a lack of spending on public services. There have been strikes in, uh, in schools and in hospitals in Slovakia. He really didn't address those, those other key issues. And the issue that he did focus on, the refugee crisis, was hijacked by politicians who had absolutely no fear of going even further than him. So by sort of... Uh, starting what you could call a scare campaign, it has backfired on him, and he's been outflanked by, by politicians who can go even further in their rhetoric than, than Fito was willing to. And Slovakia takes over the EU presidency in July. Will it, will it have a government by then? And, and how could such a government involving uh, elements like these possibly broker uh, agreements in, in Europe on issues like migrants? 
Yeah, at the moment it is extremely difficult to see how things will will go for Slovakia, even in the days and weeks ahead. Um, never mind down the line. I mean, Slovakia, as you say, is due to take over the presidency of the EU in July. And of course, we're going to be looking at major issues then. The, the refugee crisis, of course, is going to be rolling on. Um, the British in-out referendum is probably going to be going to take place then as well. So Slovakia is going to have some major things to deal with, not just on the home front, but um, but during its EU presidency. Um, and I mean, everything is open at the moment. Everything is everything is possible when it comes to uh, the way this new coalition may be formed or it may not be formed. We may even go to another round of uh, of elections very, very soon to try and get a clearer picture and a more workable um, constellation, if you like, of, of parties in Slovakia to, to try and make a government, to try and bring together a government that is more cohesive and potentially more long-lasting. So um, we're still sort of looking at the fallout from this election. We don't know how it will come together. But as you say, with Slovakia's EU presidency looming, this is of huge significance, not just for the Slovak people, but potentially for the European Union later in the year as well. Well, it all sounds rather eerily familiar. Thank you very much, Dan. You're listening to the Irish Times. In China, strict new rules on the content of TV programmes have appeared on, on the website of the China Television Drama Production Industry Association, which is part of the state administration of press, publication, radio, film and TV. They ban depictions of homosexuality, love affairs, teen romance and, and the supernatural. Clifford Coonan, a new sexual puritanism, what, what's its full scope and what does it mean in practice? Well, I think um, the puritanism has always been there, but it hasn't uh, been formally enforced uh, in so many words. Um, what they're looking at is it ties in with this whole moral crusade that we're seeing under President Xi Jinping. We've seen a lot of famous uh, film stars getting done for drugs and prostitution. Uh, it's sort of a general clampdown um, on all of the things which um, wouldn't really bat that many eyelids in, Fun, um, in, in Hollywood. Fun, basically, exactly. I mean, I'm just looking at, at, at listings of any HBO series or even on RTE. Um, I think that this ruling would rule out pretty much everything you'd, you'd expect to see in a normal evening's viewing. Now, uh, among other things, smoking, binge drinking, getting into fights and the wearing of extravagant clothes is apparently also banned. And it's, it's already had an effect on, on a popular uh, same-sex drama series, Addiction, I believe. That's right. Um, there's always been a very ambiguous uh, relationship with homosexuality in China. For the longest time, it was seen as a mental illness and um, lesbianism was just seen as completely impossible. So it was never formally banned because it, it couldn't technically exist. It was beyond the... The, no, the, the idea you know, it was, was too far-fetched. Um, so, uh, but this is actually seen, them formally banning this, this TV show. And is it likely to have an effect on, on classical work such as The Water Margin? Well, if you look at what happens in The Water Margin, you have a lot of these, um, a lot of these activities that are banned. I mean, it's also banning witchcraft, feudalism, supernatural beliefs and reincarnation which would make, uh, make up a big part of uh, Journey to the West, for example, which is one of the key classical texts here, which has produced The Monkey King. Every year you've got a film of The Monkey King, which is about supernatural beliefs, reincarnation, a fair bit of witchcraft, and a healthy dose of feudalism. So um, it, it would seem to interfere with a lot of classical texts. 
the, you've referred to the the question of, uh, of homosexuality and the the new ruling uh, bans abnormal sexual relationships or behaviour, which is taken to mean, I presume, homosexuality and dramas which promote an unhealthy state of marriage, such as slings or affairs. It it sounds like a very dull menu. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the list, I mean, you know, you'd have no love hate, you'd have no Game of Thrones, you'd have no. Um, you'd basically not even get Glen Rowe or, uh, you know, I mean, it, it seems to be, you know, anyone having an affair is kind of out of the, win- out the window at this, uh, under this ruling. Um, one of the, uh, the problems with this is I think people in these organizations like to be seen to be doing things. So um, the reality, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the reality works in effect, whether these shows actually really disappear. Um, but they like to be seen to be doing the right thing in the current climate of Puritanism. So, uh, that the next question will be to see whether this really happens that way. Has TV actually become very explicit or, or, or was it heading that way? No, I mean, one of the shows that, that was affected last year was called The Empress of China and uh, it featured Fan Bingbing, who's a very well-known actress here and uh, she's also featured in one or two Western movies. Um, and she was wearing these, uh, these, it was an historical drama, one of these endless historical dramas that run here. Um, and there was a lot of cleavage shots. Um, and she was wearing a costume that was worn at the particular, at the time in which the, the show was set. But they took the show off um, and replaced it. And what they did was they focused in just on the faces. So you had this slightly alarming to watch uh, TV show where you had these huge faces talking at each other. It was uh, in some ways far more shocking than the, than the cleavage that it replaced. Um, but it, the the whole thing was very very was very tame, I suppose, by by European standards. But it seems to have struck a nerve with the censors here. And is it the case that all TV stations are controlled by the state, are 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 part of the state broadcasting service? That's right. Everything comes under under the uh, the state administration of press, publication, radio, film, and TV. Um, and they all have to all films, all uh, publications. All media basically have to be given the okay by this uh, by this organization. It's a hugely powerful organization. There is a new um, attempt by Xi Jinping to re-emphasize Mao Zedong, uh, political conformity is being stressed, drive against corruption. Is this all part of the Xi Jinping's orthodoxy? It is. I think it all feeds into that. Um, it's basically part of... Uh, uh, as you say, an orthodoxy, an ideological purity. Um, it's about getting back to old-fashioned values, um, getting away from sort of uh, the spiritual pollution. In some ways, the language is similar to that of the of the of the Cultural Revolution forty years ago, um, where you know Western influence was seen as too strong. It's about reinforcing communist values, and um, and you know after decades where everyone's making a lot of money. Uh, where you've seen a lot of corruption in the party ranks, it's about trying to bring things back to um, to to these old values. Is it meeting any kind of pushback? Is there is there any kind of resistance that you see within either the uh, party hierarchy or among, say, young people online? Well, what was interesting actually today in sort of breaking news, um, uh, Jiang Hong, a, a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is an advisory body to the national parliament, which is meet the National People's Congress, which is meeting right now. Um, he said in public that it was unacceptable that a report about him had been blocked on the social network platform WeChat. Um, and it was published on Sai Sin, which is a very popular business magazine here too. Um, 
and it's about encouraging more freedom of speech. And the fact that someone would uh, say in such a high-profile platform as the as the National People's Congress would complain about um, deleting of uh, online posts and blocking websites on the internet is actually a very significant pushback. And, and a lot of people are quite surprised that he chose this um, this platform. He also said more needed to be done to ensure citizens' rights to expression. So um, it's very possible that there's different forces at work at the moment. There does seem to be some pushback. Thank you very much, Clifford. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch, Dan McLaughlin and Clifford Coonan, to our producer Declan Conlon, researcher John Casey, and on sound Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.